everyone and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead, no matter where we are this morning. Our service will be led by Katrina, but we'll also hear the voices of Mary and Ian tomorrow morning, our Paul and Leo, and in just a moment, Esther and David will be lighting our candle. Then this evening at 7pm, lead our evening reflection during which we'll share in communion. So please have something ready to eat and drink if you're planning to join us for evening worship today. Then just a wee reminder to those who are exploring baptism and church membership that the first meeting of their group will be this Friday evening, that's 7.30 on the 18th of February for the group who are exploring baptism and church membership, and that will be on Zoom. Then a note for parents and grandparents of Sunday school children. Um, you'll have noticed that as well as this week's lesson, attached to your weekly email was a questionnaire, which Emma would be very grateful if you would fill in. It's asking you some questions about what you would really like from Sunday school, but perhaps most importantly, asking you what time Sunday school would work best for you uh, when we're in person. So if there's anything you want to tell the Sunday School staff at all, please take this opportunity to fill in the wee form and send it back to Emma. Her email address is uh, on yesterday's email and she'd be particularly grateful if you could manage to find the time to do that sometime in the next two weeks. And then kind of um, related to that, next Sunday after morning worship, we thought we'd use the breakout rooms uh, to have time to have a bit of a chat about returning to worship in the hotel. As you know, uh, going forward into the future, we hope to be able to offer both uh, on-site worship in the hotel and online worship via Zoom, so that it still wouldn't matter where in the world you are, you can be part of Sunday morning worship at Hillhead. But it would be particularly helpful to hear from people who think they would like to be on-site at the hotel so we can do some practical planning for that. So if you're around next Sunday morning, please head for one of the breakout rooms where you'll find one of the trustees uh, who'll kind of lead you through some questions that we'd be very grateful to hear your views on. Then in family news, um, we have a number of friends who are undergoing medical tests at the moment, and we'd like to ask you to remember the following people in your prayers, please. First for Lily, um, who's in hospital undergoing tests, uh, though obviously um, it's not possible to visit at the moment, but please remember Lily. Tom is also undergoing tests, and Leslie's niece, Laura, uh, who lives in Ireland, is currently waiting to have some tests done. Please remember all of these folks, these are always worrying times, uh, the waiting times. Sheila continues to recover well from surgery. And for those of us who know her family well, if you would like to attend her sister-in-law Maggie's funeral, it is tomorrow, Monday, at 11 a.m. First of all, in Port Glasgow New Parish Church, with the committal following at Greenock Crematorium. So that's Maggie's funeral tomorrow, 11 a.m. Port Glasgow New Parish Church, with the committal at Greenock Crematorium afterwards. So, at long last, over to Esther and David uh, and Modi to light our candle. As we gather for worship, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is a light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ's light this day.
As we gather, let us pray. God of the Sabbath, day set aside for rest and refreshment. We thank you for this short time in which we may pause from the demands of daily life to refocus our hearts and minds towards you and to become aware of the wonder of being your beloved children. God of the sacred, things set apart as holy, glimpses of your grace, encounters with the divine. We thank you for the wonder of who you are beyond our words, beyond our imagination, yet enfolding us and all creation within your endless embrace of love. God of the ordinary, who delights in simplicity, whose generosity and creativity ensure skies spangled with stars, multicoloured sunsets, and the simple rhythms of days, seasons and years. We thank you for all that we so often fail to notice, simply because it's there especially your loving kindness, renewed each morning. God, in whom all things hold together, author and perfecter of the story of all creation, as we worship you this day, may we be refreshed and renewed to live more fully as your beloved children, learning how to follow Jesus as your spirit inspires and enables us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Our Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted strontiously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger, which what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you, you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from here to us. He said, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. We continue our short series looking at some of the parables that are uniquely recorded within the Gospel of Luke. And so today we turn to the one that is usually referred to as the rich man and Lazarus. Luke's Gospel doesn't give us any obvious context for the telling of this story. In fact, I actually think you could take it out of the gospel and the thing would flow perfectly well without it. It almost feels as if it's been added as an afterthought. It's not told in answer to a question and it doesn't arise following a particular encounter. So it is a strange story. And maybe something in that strangeness means it's worth taking a little bit of time to think about it. I tried this week to recall how old I would have been when I first heard this story. And I'm guessing I first heard it around about 50 years ago, which is slightly scary. But even at that young age of eight or nine years, I was puzzled by this story. There's always been something about it that seemed to jar, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. 
I did an electronic search back over my 20 odd years of preaching and discovered I have only once before spoken on this parable. As it happens, it was at Hillhead a long time ago, and it came with a whole stack of disclaimers. I did it with great caution because actually it is a troubling parable. And I feel really uncomfortable with something that at a surface level, at least, seems to depict very graphically what life beyond death might look like. So it's really important as we start to look at this parable that we recognise what it is not. Unlike the other stories that Jesus tells, this one is not a real imaginable situation. All his other stories are rooted firmly in the here and now. We have widows baking, widows are people baking bread. We have people with sheep. We have people going on journeys. But this one doesn't. This is a strange story. And unlike the story we heard last week of the priest, the Levite and the Samaritan, which was a very definitely Jewish story, this one owes more to the neighbouring cultures and tales in which humans, mortals and gods would interact directly and there would be things taking place in the heavenlies and as well as on the earth. It's a very different kind of story to anything else we discover in the Gospels. And whilst it is certainly the case, and this troubles me, that there are still commentators to this day who will say, and this gives us the basis for understanding hell as a place of eternal conscious torment, that is totally not consistent with how it would originally have been heard or what Jesus would have been intending. This is not a story about heaven and hell. We should not and we must not allow it to feed our imaginations as to what might happen to us or anyone else after they die. That is not why Jesus tells the story. And I'm as close as I am to thumping a pulpit as I will ever be as I say that. This is not a description of heaven and hell. It's not designed to scare people into some kind of repentance thing. It's not a Jewish story, but it is told to a Jewish audience. And it would be a really disturbing story for them, not because it's culturally dissonant, though it is, but actually it taps into another of the many unconscious biases of that culture. In Jesus' time, most people equated prosperity with blessing and illness or poverty with punishment or sin. As we look at this story, we will see how they could. it sort of starts from that place and then moves on. There is a rich man. He is dressed in the finest clothes and he dines sumptuously. It's a very specific word in the uh, NRSV translation. He has the best food that money can buy. He would be on Great British Banquet eating that kind of food every day of the week. So surely the reader, the hearers will think this must be a righteous man. He's a man of status and his, his lifestyle suggests that he is richly blessed. In contrast, there is a poor man who is covered in sores and seemingly he is so frail or disabled that he has to be carried and laid outside the gate of the rich man's house. He can't even get there himself anymore. So by the comparable logic, he must have been a terrible sinner, a really bad person to have such an awful life. What has he done that he would deserve this to happen to him? And I would imagine the hearers are already starting to draw conclusions about these men, to speculate on their lifestyles, not because they're bad people or they're cruel people, but actually, this is the way they've grown up. This is what they have either been taught or assimilated, perhaps, by osmosis over many years. And just as is the case nowadays, preachers will have focused on specific stories in, in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. So they will have 
been very much reminded about how God blesses those who are righteous. And probably forgotten about the story of Abram and Sarah, who were righteous people who were childless. Or that intriguing mythological account of Job, who is incredibly righteous, but loses everything as a kind of a test. They've assumed and accepted that there is a link between righteousness and prosperity and health or unrighteousness and suffering and poverty. And so as we start to look at that story, I find myself and I suspect each of us being asked again, well, what are our unconscious biases? What are the things that for us in a Scottish or English or British or German or North American or any other context, we just don't even think about? It's just the way it is. We, we make value judgments, not because we've thought them through, but because that's what we have just absorbed unthinkingly. We can't and mustn't beat ourselves up for having unconscious biases. That's just a thing. But then neither can we say, well, they don't matter once we become aware of them. Because they do. If I discover, or not if, when I discover I am unconsciously biased in favour or against a particular people group, then I can't just go, oh, well, that's the way it is. I have to begin to think how I change as a result of becoming aware of that. One way this story is sometimes heard is as a story of role reversal. So do we deduce as the story unfolds that the rich man was actually the sinner, the unrighteous one that he ends up in Hades, and the poor man is righteous because he ends up in the bosom of Abraham? Do we then wonder that it's actually a good thing to suffer and a bad thing to have a comfortable life? I'm glad to say that most of the commentators I've looked at make it very clear that the answer to this is no. What Jesus is not doing is taking assumptions and turning them upside down and say, oh, it's really good to suffer. We know that isn't true. It's really bad to have a nice life. We know that isn't true either. I think we have to remember that binary world views, sort of two things set in opposition, are not helpful. And actually, life is much more complicated, much more nuanced than that. We can't simply say that person is good because this and that person is bad because that. We are all a mixture of good and bad. And actually, defining isn't helpful. Life is complicated. So this story is quite shocking because it challenges any attempts to put people into boxes. But there's even more. It's a really rich parable to mine for thoughts to ponder further. I'm just going to invite you for just a few moments to try and think and to call to mind as many of Jesus' parables, the stories he told, as you can that include a character with a name. I don't actually need to give you very long because there are no other parables in which a character has a name. And in this parable, only one character has a name. The frail, sick man shut outside the gates is named as Lazarus. Ah, you may say, but actually the rich man is called Dives. Well, no, he isn't. That's just a tradition that has grown up from the Latin translation of the story. Because the word Dives simply means rich or rich man. It's a description. It's an, it's an adjective. It's not a given name. So if Jesus gives this one person a name, that must matter, surely. If in one story, one person is named. You may know, you may not, but Lazarus is a variation of the Hebrew name Eliezer. 
which translates as God helps or at a slight stretch because Isa or Eza means father and Eli, Eli means God. It could mean God is father. So when you start looking at the scholars and the commentators, they spend a lot of time going, oh, did Jesus hear us? equate this character with other people in their scriptures with that name. And there are a couple of Eliezer's in the Old Testament stories, the Hebrew scriptures. But they conclude that, no, that's not a likely thing to have happened. Others note that in Luke's gospel, we have a story with a character called Lazarus. And in John's gospel, we have an actual character called Lazarus who is recorded as rising from the dead. And so they speculate whether Luke has a story, a, a fable, a, a parable based on the event that John describes, or whether John is aware of the story that Luke tells and turns this into an event, a sign or a miracle to point to who Jesus is. Again, we have no way of knowing if either of those are true. But most likely, this is a story in its own right, and the naming is not meant to point us to any other character in the scriptures. What matters, I think, is that he is given a name. He matters enough to be named. Humanly, he is utterly significant. He's just one more victim of a society that equates illness with sinfulness. Poverty must be his own fault. He hasn't worked hard enough or he's been lazy or it's just a consequence of his, his sinfulness. He began life with little. He will end life with nothing. When he dies, he most probably won't even get a funeral. Somebody will just scoop up the body and chuck it on the rubbish heap outside the, the city and he'll be forgotten about. But Jesus gives him a name. He's unseen. He's unnoticed by all the people around him. But he is seen and noticed and importantly named by the God who creates, loves and cherishes him. God who helps, God who is father carry a sense of promise to those who are the least and, humanly speaking, the lost. It's not just a label. It's a name, a name which carries value. And it's more than a name. It's a name with a meaning and a significance. I think if this story can teach us nothing else, it is that God knows all of us, sees all of us, and knows and sees that those who we don't notice or who we vilify or who we ignore. And God loves them enough to name them. This strange non-Hebrew story has really powerful imagery. We have the poor man who dies alone and unnoticed. And yet down come the angels and gather him up and take him to the arms of Abraham, a safe embrace to the father of the whole Hebrew nation, in fact, the father of all nations. And it's a beautiful image, but probably if we were standing there listening, we would have been horrified. This dirty, decaying, forgotten about man is treated with such tenderness and such welcome by our greatest ancestor. We're also told that the rich man dies. We are told nothing about the funeral rites that would have taken place, but we know that his body would have been carefully washed, wrapped in fine linen. He would have been anointed with spices and herbs, and he would have been laid to rest in a carefully chosen grave. After this last lavishing of luxury, though, he finds himself alone. He is in Hades, a mythical place 
of torment and suffering. And so there he is. And it's important for the purposes of the story that that's where he is. He is suffering and he has never known in life what it is to suffer. Suddenly in the story, we discover that actually he has not only been aware that Lazarus existed, he knew his name. So he can't say, I didn't know that there was this poor man outside my gate all this time. Because he did. He knows him by name. Now, we're not told that he had ever been actively cruel to Lazarus. He's not willfully hurt him. But he has certainly never been kind to him. He has ignored him. He was shut outside the gate where his presence couldn't interfere with the daily life of the rich man. Effectively, he was hidden in plain sight, unobserved or ignored by the rich man. Something the commentator said, which I'd never particularly thought about until this week, is that even in this afterlife, the rich man assumes himself to be superior to Lazarus. He calls out to Abraham's hand and says, send Lazarus to bring me some water to cool my mouth. I'm, I'm burning up and I, I, I need some water to refresh me. And Abraham's response is remarkably gentle, if measured and firm. He calls the rich man his child. He says, child, I can't do this. It's just no longer possible. There is this great chasm, this non-traversable gap between us. I can't send Lazarus over there. It's impossible. And then Abraham goes on just simply to state the facts about the situation. Lazarus had a, a hard life and now he has comfort. The rich man had comfort and, and now he doesn't. So some people see this as a kind of, of justice, a kind of, as you sow, so shall you reap thing. But it's not doesn't really work because the poor man hasn't done anything to earn comfort. And the rich man, as far as we know, hasn't done anything to deserve punishment. But we do seem to see this impossible gap at the end. Some of the scholars think the story stops here and we're just left to work it out for ourselves. But others see the, the second appeal to Abraham as, as part of the original story. This rich man seems to care about his brothers and doesn't want them to befall the same fate as him. So he says, well, can't you send him back then to, to warn my brothers? And Abraham says, no. No, they've already got Moses and the prophets. It's all there for them to see. They hear it. Week by week, they reflect on it often enough. They hear people teach on it or preach on it. Up to them to put it into action. Maybe he recalls how he lived his own life. He knew all this stuff, but he just was so busy enjoying himself that he couldn't see what was right under his nose. So he's not convinced. Well, well, surely, he says, if somebody rose from the dead, they believe that. I mean, that just never happens does it and Abraham says no no if they don't believe what they've got even something as incredible as apparently ridiculous as Lazarus returning from the dead isn't going to change anything perhaps this part of the story deliberately picks up the resurrection of Christ himself which would have happened long before Luke tells his, writes his gospel and tells his story, hinting that people won't believe when Jesus is raised and people won't necessarily change their minds as a result of it. But perhaps it simply hints at the difficulty or even impossibility of softening hard hearts and closed minds. One last thought um, before we wind up. I think it's really striking, although until this week, it had never really struck me. <laughs> so when you see something that's been hidden in plain sight, it's suddenly really obvious, isn't it? Lazarus never speaks in this story. He doesn't speak in life. We hear nothing of him calling for arms or pleading with the rich man to help him. 
And after death, he plays no part in the conversation between Abraham and the rich man. He is, throughout the story, voiceless. And I do find myself wondering who it is whose voices I never hear. Who never speaks out? Who never asks for help? Who never rages against injustice? I actually find myself wondering who it is who is invisible, not because they're shut outside the gate, but because they're not enabled to speak or be heard once they are at least notionally inside the gate. Who is it that I don't notice because they're quiet or not vocal? Who do I fail to see because they just accept things rather than challenging things? Who is it that has power? And who is it that is unintentionally at least disempowered? In the story, in Luke's gospel, there is no explanation offered for the parable. We're left to make of it what we will. The law is clear, love God and love your neighbour. And yet still there are those like Lazarus who are hidden in plain sight, overlooked and ignored. Yet we discover that they are seen and named and valued by God. So I want to leave us with some questions to take away and ponder a bit further. If I were to locate myself in the story, which character would I be and why? When have I been like Lazarus, silent or silenced, unnoticed or ignored? And when and how have I been like the rich man and what might I therefore need to reflect upon? As we take those questions, which are tough questions, away, let us pray. Jesus, we find this story bewildering and terrifying. Fearful that we might be somehow like the rich man whose failure to notice what was just outside his gate had eternal consequences. Forgive us when we have been so self-absorbed that we couldn't see what was hidden in plain sight. And help us instead by your grace to live the good news we profess. Jesus, we also find this story strangely reassuring, reminding us that when we feel like Lazarus, Ignored and overlooked, silenced and shunned, you see what no one else sees and hear the silent cries of our hearts, valuing and naming and holding us. Encourage us to find our voices so that we may speak out for ourselves and for others rather than unintentionally colluding with the status quo. As citizens of your kingdom, may we live out and speak out the values and dreams which inspire our faith in the here and now. Amen.
Our prayers for others this morning take the form of some questions to think about and some silence and space to reflect. Let's pray together. We begin by noticing God's presence with us as we pray. Let's spend a few moments in thankfulness as we remember the unexpected gifts that we've noticed over this last week. Where have you found joy this last week? Did you wake up in a good mood? Did you come home to a safe, warm house? Was there a kind word or a wise friend? What has troubled you this week? Perhaps it was something in the news, international events. Maybe it was closer to home, a loved one who's not well or who's waiting for tests. Maybe it's someone who you love who's far away. Maybe you're worried that someone you care about isn't talking to you about what's going on in their mind. We bring these events and people before God. We reflect on those questions that Katrina asked us. Where do you find yourself in the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Can you think of a time when you, like Lazarus, have been silenced or ignored? What about a time when you have been more like the rich man? Who have you not noticed outside your gate this week? Whose voices have been missing from your week? Together we pray for those in our own congregation. We pray for our Sunday school and our Bible class and crash as they explore what the future is going to look like. We remember Jeff and Carol, Karis, Fiona and Donnie, Barbara and Ken, Edith F, Essan and Annis, Paul F and Lily, and Leslie's niece Laura. In the Baptist Union of Scotland, we pray for John Crabe, the chaplain at Lomos Prison. For Bristol Baptist Church in Edinburgh. For Brotty Ferry Baptist Church and for Broxburn Baptist Church. This week, the BMS invites us to pray for them as they seek to create safe spaces for all in all aspects of their work. They ask for our prayers for Louise Lynch and Linda Darby, their safeguarding champions in Asia and Africa, and for their safeguarding team, Becky, Mary, Roger, Sam and Lynn. We pray that BMS would be an organisation known for treating people with dignity and respect. As we reflect on all we have noticed about this last week, and we take a moment to think about how we want to act in the, in the coming week, what might the Holy Spirit be prompting us to do or say? We gather all of our prayers together in Jesus' name as we say Amen together. Amen.
now. May the God who knows each of us by name and loves us with a never-ending love bless us with confidence in the promises that inspire our faith and courage to live out the gospel each and every day. Amen.